Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A warning to Indigenous people listening. This podcast series includes stories of physical and sexual violence, suicide, and death. Listen with caution and care. The sacred fire for Barbara Kentner and her family burned in the parking lot behind a funeral home for four days and nights during the trial of the man who struck her down for no reason. Visitors dipped in and out all week, dropping off armloads of hot pizza from the bakery across the street and truckloads of brush to spread on the pavement around the fire. Parents brought their young kids to lay tobacco down and honor Barbara's life. Some of them learning the process from the firekeepers for the very first time. It was a ceremony, not a protest. Early in the sunrise and late into the night, there was ceremony and conversation. Conversations about what kind of city they wanted to live in together when this was all over. No one in local government came until social media posts popped up shaming these leaders for their absence. But what matters is who did show up. Because this has all gone way too far. I think it means that if he's guilty, justice is served. You know, he's actually going to face the consequences. If the judge rules that he's guilty, it sort of validates what we already know. And it'll be quite demoralizing if he's found not guilty. I guess because it's just such a blatant attack. And it's not just another murder, even though it was tried as a manslaughter. It's like she was targeted because she was someone who walked. She was just a Nishnabic woman living her life in Thunder Bay, and for that reason only, she was killed. Whether Bushby goes to prison or not, he's not going to be rehabilitated, so he's not going to be given the chance to change. Prison doesn't do that for anybody. What if he's not guilty? I still don't think it matters in some way whether he goes to prison or not. I think it would just prove what most Indigenous people already know in the city, which is that their lives really are disposable to the city. Justice isn't going to be served no matter what the verdict is. And if Braden Bushby doesn't get any form of punishment out of this, or if he's not paying in any way that's anything meaningful to anyone, then it proves her life isn't worth anything. It means that once again it's being demonstrated that Indigenous lives don't mean anything. I'm Ryan McMahon, and this is the final episode of Return to Thunder Bay. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Pretendians is brought to you by BetterHelp. Angel, you seem a bit stressed. Do you have anything you want to get off your chest? Anything you're bottling up? I mean, compared to some of the people on the show, I'm good. But of course, like most people, I do carry around a lot of worries and anxieties. I'm this mom who goes around and works her tail off and I do the carpooling because the teenagers don't want to drive. I think I'm just overextended and that people don't really appreciate me sometimes. I appreciate you. (laughs) Thank you, Robert. Well, talking about this stuff seems to help, and not everyone has a podcast where they can work through it. So that's why there's therapy, like BetterHelp. Angel, have you tried therapy? I'm a huge fan of therapy, actually. Some of the things that have helped me really keep all these plates spinning are the coping skills and strategies that I have to deal with stress, like setting good boundaries or knowing when to say no and all of those things um, I wasn't able to do before therapy. If you want to experience the benefits of therapy without the hassle of trying to find your own therapist, check out BetterHelp. It's been used by over 3 million people worldwide and it's available in the US and Canada. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash pretendians. That's betterhelp.com slash pretendians. And I remember looking around, sometimes I look at the building, I look up at the ceiling and, you know, like I remember it was the second day, I think. I remember thinking like this and talking to myself and I'm asking myself, what the fuck am I doing here? Saul Mamakwa became a member of provincial parliament, the first person to ever represent Northern First Nations in the Ontario provincial legislature. He was elected in a riding that didn't exist until three years ago. Few communities in this vast territory have roads, high schools, and many lack clean drinking water. It's a territory Canada and Ontario have long ignored. It's also a territory of 33,000 people, where more than 600 youths have taken their own lives since the 1980s. The process is in that Queen's Park is uh, I have to pitch questions. Mamakwa is a member of the opposition party, the New Democrats. His job is to critique the ruling provincial government on its Indigenous Affairs file. November 2019 to December, early January 2020, where there were just a rash of suicides were happening in our communities. For three weeks, uh, you know, like I'm pitching these questions, like uh, there's two young girls that passed away in these communities. There's three young girls now and whatever. Like I'm trying to pitch this question and I get no response, eh? And I got really frustrated with, even with my party, right? Like, I mean, there's so many issues that are happening across Ontario. There's so many issues, right? So I just gave them, heck, you know what, I'm fed up. I said, I'm just telling you guys, I'm frustrated. And said, this is our last week and we break for two months, three months, whatever. And, you know, is this how I'm going to leave? On the second last day, he got his chance to rise in the house. Premier, these young people died. And uh, why? Because they lost hope. 
They lost hope in us responding to the needs of their communities. I speak about lack of clean drinking water, lack of safe housing in our communities, infrastructure and safe schools. Premier, I ask you, what are you prepared to do to give hope to these young people? The minister in charge of Indigenous issues offered those communities his thoughts and prayers and suggested that economic prosperity, jobs and investments were the answer. Supplementary question. Mr. Speaker, uh, we need more than thoughts and prayers from this place. Exactly. The issue of youth suicide in our communities is a long-term problem. Colonization is, uh, and its ongoing effects contribute to the, uh, the crisis of youth suicide. The continued uh, neglect by colonial governments, like such as this place, means young people fall through the cracks. Justin Trudeau swept into power in a landslide federal election in which he repeatedly voiced his commitment to bridging the gap. The reconciliation era had begun across Canada. The idea of reconciliation, of repairing a broken relationship, appealed to millions of Canadians. But that idea assumes there had been a good relationship to begin with. Undoing 150 years of colonial rule and its fallout is a monumental undertaking, especially without a blueprint. No relationship is more important to Canada than the relationship with Indigenous peoples. But in all the talk of renewed nation-to-nation, Inuit-Crown and government-to-government relationships, there's been a missing piece. That missing piece is you. No one knew what that meant. For Settler Canada, reconciliation is an end. For Indigenous people, it's just the beginning. But who's going to do the work? The reconciliation agenda quickly fell into the laps of children and youth. Riley Yesno is a 22-year-old member of Yebmatung, also known as Fort Hope First Nation. She had an idea. She'd bring her message directly from Thunder Bay to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself. She joined the first ever Prime Minister's Youth Council. When I first got in, I was of this like impression that as I got older, I was like, I'm going to make a change and I'm going to do that by becoming an MP and maybe the Prime Minister one day. I remember feeling like at the first meeting that I got there that I was like, oh, they definitely picked me only because I was Indigenous and they needed some Indigenous representation. And like, not to, to to discredit myself in any way, but just that, you know, the people that they had selected so clearly fit, I felt these really tokenized boxes. And so, for example, you know, there was one Inuit person, one Métis, two First Nations, one male and one female. There was one Black woman, one Black man. Just these really, it's almost like they had a checklist. Yesno's work with the Youth Council put her in some pretty exclusive spaces where she found herself face to face with high level government officials. 
we had a meeting with the chief commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, and she told us all that we couldn't blame the RCMP for any part that they played in residential schools because they were just doing their job and they thought they were doing the right thing. The minister, she was minister of heritage, I believe at the time, Minister Jolie, just, you know, straight up told me that she really couldn't have a conversation with me about uh, indigenous languages and national languages until I was able to accept that we were a post-colonial society now. Finally, Yes No made it all the way to the prime minister's office. At this point, she had one thing she wanted to say to Justin Trudeau. Implement a national suicide prevention plan. And seeing the way that they had engaged with conversations before, I didn't want to phrase it of like, oh, like, what do you think about this? I wanted to phrase it as this is my advice to you. I'm not really interested in debating it. And you can take it or you can leave it type thing. And he really did not respond well to that. He got, uh, in his words, very passionate and started saying, you know, Plans don't save people's lives, Riley. Water saves people's lives, which I guess referencing, you know, the lack of water and the basic, you know, conditions of survival in Indigenous communities. And I was just like, I don't understand how this is, you know, at all relevant to what I'm saying. And he went on and on kind of just like listing about how much he cares about this and people don't think he cares about it, but he does. And so I basically just told him that, you know, there are many examples of suicide uh, prevention plans working. I think you should do it. That's all I have to say. And I got up and left. And when I came back, he, I think, was advised to apologize to me and so did um, for, you know, uh, yelling at me. Yes, no, quit the prime minister's youth council. Trudeau never did introduce a national suicide prevention plan. And yes, no's home community of Yevmatung, it's still under a boil water advisory today. It has been since 2001. It's just really hard to change. And what it takes is a recognition and a desire to make these changes. That's exactly what we need to start doing as a country. To not get defensive about the fact that we're not perfect and our systems are not perfect. But say, okay, we recognize that things aren't perfect and that's why we're going to work very hard to listen, to learn, to understand. Growing up in Fort Francis, three hours west of Thunder Bay, I didn't necessarily realize the experiences my family and I had growing up were racist. It was normal that I didn't see a brown face behind a cash register on the main drag. I didn't have the language to articulate what I was feeling. That changed in 1993 when I attended my first anti-racism workshop at my local friendship center. Youth from all over Northwestern Ontario bust in to share their experiences. We left the weekend with new language and a new understanding of how pervasive racism is in our small town, in the province, and in our country. I heard the experiences of other youth and I saw parts of myself and my family reflected in the material. I was 15 and the workshop was run by Moffat Makuto. I'm Moffat Makuto. I've been doing this work forever, I would say. I was born in Africa, came to Canada in 1972, almost the time multiculturalism policy was being developed. And it really fascinated me, the whole concept of multiculturalism. 
because coming from Africa in uh, Rhodesia, then Zimbabwe, where there was almost apartheid, blacks were segregated and we could not vote in our own country and everything. Makuto started doing this work in Thunder Bay 35 years ago as a way to bridge what he saw as a gap in the multicultural agenda that had been set forth in Canada by Justin Trudeau's father, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Indigenous peoples were largely left out of the conversation around multiculturalism. Trudeau's signature policy was to redefine Canada as a beautiful society made up of people who came here from all over the world. It was a vision that rarely included the people who were here first. At that time, the multiculturalism we were talking about focused more on just immigrants and refugees and people who had come from somewhere. It never really incorporated indigenous people. I remember very well being told that we cannot work with indigenous people because they fall under the Indian Act. Makuto felt that the experiences of indigenous people reminded him of the apartheid-like conditions in his native Zimbabwe. He started to challenge the status quo around the edges of the multicultural conversation in Canada. He never stopped doing that work. He shows up every day for these kids. He always has. Northwestern Ontario has never seen anything like him. The city, like Thunder Bay, needs to invest in proactive programs with people who really understand where young people are. Target those neighborhoods where there's nothing and these kids are vulnerable. Makuto understands that many youth in the city don't have a safe after-school space. He understands not all youth in the city can afford hockey registrations and swimming lessons. He knows you have to provide options. Yet we have a fantastic children's charter that says every kid should have good food, shelter, like all those nice things. Why are we now saying gangs are coming over to take over? Because we have left a void in our own responsibility. And I don't really believe it's a lack of money. I think it's a lack of political will and commitment, coupled with that whole ignorance that they really don't believe these people can have a better life. What happens when all of a sudden that political will is there? In August of 2018, Thunder Bay members of Parliament announced $5.6 million over five years for a youth inclusion program. They said it was awarded in response to the recommendations from the Seven Youth Inquest, specifically to better support Indigenous youth coming here for education. Once again, journalist John Thompson. It's good to see you too. The feds talked about wanting to avoid further tragedies like those youth deaths. They expect 1,075 youth will go through the program by 2022. Well, that actually sounds good. That sounds exactly like what Makuto has been waiting for for decades. Well, no, that, that money doesn't go to Makuto. The city ran its own program focused on crime prevention. It's not about helping youth avoid victimization so much as it's trying to spare Thunder Bay from the youth it purports to help. So there are these after-school programs, weekend training, life skills and the like. They're targeting kids deemed statistically the most likely to cause trouble. So Indigenous youth. So when you have, for example, a justice system in which Indigenous people are incarcerated at rates of 10 to 12 times their presence in the population, 
you ask yourself the question of why is that happening? And of course, the first response for most people is it's because they commit more crime. Once again, this is Senator Murray Sinclair. So then you look at the crime statistics and you see, in fact, that they do not commit crime at the rate of 10 to 12 times their representation in the population, but they may commit crime at five to six times their presence in the population. But the kind of crime that they're committing is actually low levels of offenses or crimes that normally would not result in incarceration. So why then are they still being incarcerated? And you realize that many of the offenses that they're committing are what we call social control offenses. So they're things like breaches of probation, breaches of court order, things that normally people would not go to jail for but might receive a fine. But because they can't pay the fine, they end up going to jail. The Youth Inclusion Program actually competes with existing organizations that are already working here, including Makudos. Yes, you've got $5.6 million, but really accountability. Show us what you have really accomplished with that money. With inconsistent funding and the doors closing all around him, he was running out of options. He's mortgaged his house twice to keep the Anti-Racism Youth Center in Thunder Bay open. Because when we've, like say, lost that revenue, and of course the city has these rates to pay. First Nations groups have done their part. They have given us a lot of resources to help pay the hydro and everything. But city property, that's city property. And people were saying, why would the city be charging young people? Do they want you to sell chocolate bars and oranges to raise money to save a vision of inclusion? Kids don't have money. So given the choice of either losing the youth center and so forth and seeing the benefits of really what it was, I had to mortgage my own house. And this is the second time I've done it because the problems have not been solved. It's not anything that someone was mismanaging money. These are city property rates, which the city, I really believe, if they wanted, they could have said, we'll give you a write-off because you are doing so much work for us. As long as you can pay for your hydro and then everything, city rates, we can give you a break on that. The city didn't give Makudo that break. Thunder Bay became internationally notorious for its racism and for youth death, and it dedicated itself to changing. It hasn't. The city's anti-racism committee is on the verge of collapse. This is its chair, Jason Veltri. We are continuing to do something that isn't working anymore. I fundamentally believe that the anti-racism advisory committee has kind of expired. It needs a new path forward. Doing the same thing and expecting a different result is the clear definition of insanity. And that's what we're doing. We are circling and circling and circling without actually doing anything. We're having conversations, which is step one, but those conversations don't leave that table or that room anymore. He's moving to dismantle the committee entirely, which may not be a bad idea. An essential staple of Makuto's work is getting youth motivated to help. Even teenagers say they can't sit through a meeting because white apologists for the city's failed efforts are making it impossible to even stick to an agenda. This is Haran, one of Makuto's youth volunteers. It's either one person on the community that is white talk about, oh, 
although I know I'm white, but I'm doing a lot for the city. I'm doing a lot for the community or the city going like defensive and talking about, it's like, no, we're not doing like nothing for this. We actually care about this. And then at the end of the day, nothing is done. I just stopped going because nothing was done. Thunder Bay is known for its landmark, the Sleeping Giant, or Nanibiju in Anishinaabe Moan. It's also known for racism against Indigenous people. But there's a community of local educators and businesses hoping to change that. The rest of Canada, all of Canada, uh, thinks of Thunder Bay in that way. Um, For our students, for their parents, they're scared to send their kids here. For our students, they're scared to come here. Nobody wants to live in a city that's best known for hate crimes and racism. Maybe you want to change it even if you're not the kind of person who joins committees or volunteers at youth centers. Like, what are we doing here? We gotta, we, we, I can't sit here. We all can't sit here and watch this continue to happen. Like, we've got to do something. This is Greg Chomit, a teacher at Dennis Franklin Cromartie. He's one of the people who came up with the Wake the Giant program. Thousands of stickers were distributed across the city so that businesses could put them up in their windows as a signal to Indigenous youth to say they were safe in their establishments. There's just one of them that sticks out to me is this girl had known for a long time that she needed counseling, you know, really struggling. And she had constantly been putting it off, putting it off, because she didn't feel like any place in Thunder Bay was going to support her, you know, that she didn't feel welcome entering any of the counseling offices. Till one day she was walking past one of the local counseling offices there was a Wake the Giant sticker on it, and it was that just that extra little bit that just gave her the confidence to go in and ask for help. Some kids we talked to said they were still being followed around in stores. It just came with a friendly face. Yeah, like, don't be following me around the store or, like, just staring me down and being like, look, look, I got one. I got an Indigenous person in my store. Do you see the Wake the Giant sticker? I feel so great. There was no training to go along with this program. There wasn't anything businesses had to read or sign or commit to in terms of creating a safe space. They just got a sticker to put in the window. One thing I want to see out of this is, you know, actually seeing more Indigenous people be hired in these Wake the Giant spaces that don't actually have Indigenous people representing storefronts or anything. Even like the coffee shops that have the Wake the Giant stickers, I have yet to see an actual Indigenous person serve me some coffee. Like, it's just kind of like putting a Band-Aid on something and you're not really trying to fix it. It doesn't really feel like they're taking accountability, really. The organizers have heard those criticisms. They're designing training to certify local shops and are introducing business owners to Indigenous students who need jobs. Wake the Giant is doing that constant, ongoing work that change demands. We formed a new band. What do you think, There was also a Wake the Giant concert held at Marina Park to promote racism awareness. People felt included. They felt safe. When I go to Marina Park, I usually always feel that on-guard feeling where I have to look over my shoulder, where I have to make sure that I'm safe and that I'm not being judged by a group of little old white ladies on lawn chairs. 
So that was really nice to have a space like that in Thunder Bay. And that's mostly what I want to keep creating for the city because we don't have enough of spaces where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people can just chill and not really have to emotionally hold knives to each other's throats because that's how I feel sometimes when I am in spaces where I know that there are people I am unfamiliar with, therefore they might carry some prejudices about me or the things I say. The idea for Wake the Giant was developed by educators from DFC on a train ride to the nation's capital. They were there to plead for funding for a new school. Just before we closed um, the school for the pandemic, I had to move the resource teacher out of his room because the asbestos water was splashing onto his desk. Dobie Don Fernet is director of education for the Northern Nishinaabe Education Council. The saddest thing for me always, whether it's when I was in First Nations or at DFC, is when you see the pride of the students and the communities of something that's literally crumbling around them. But they're so proud that it's theirs. Across the football field from Dennis Franklin Cromartie, there's a new $30 million super elementary school that opened in September 2020. It was built on the site of Sir Winston Churchill, a public high school. Even though Churchill was newer, bigger, and in better shape than DFC, it wasn't worth fixing, according to the province. DFC students watched the construction out their back window. That school that we're in right now is literally falling apart brick by brick. They're building a new school next door to us, and as they were using the jackhammer and everything last year, Our bricks were falling out of the roof, out of the wall. The roof leaks. There's a reason that that school is not being used anymore by the provincial school board, but it's good enough for us. And that is not acceptable anymore. Norma Kijic is the executive director of the Northern Nishnabi Education Council. She oversees DFC. Why do our kids always get secondhand? Why do our kids always get hand-me-downs? Our students deserve a proper education in a state-of-the-art building with a residence where they are safe and cared for by their own people. On the other side of the river from DFC sits another Indigenous high school in another building deemed unfit for its original purpose. Matawa First Nations are renovating a nursing home the city gave to them when it no longer met provincial standards. It's next to a new long-term care facility the province built for more than $100 million. Matawa is held up as a shining example. A lighthouse. A model for other schools with similar needs. It's got nine mental health counselors on site. A youth center across the street. Psychiatric treatment. Family therapy supports for addictions, and their students have access to one of the three new youth detox centers in Thunder Bay. On top of that, the building's getting a $25 million renovation. But it's still not enough. There's still more that needs to be done. And when we talk about um, success and we talk about highlights, there's a lot of great things to point out, but there's still kids dying. There's still kids on the streets. There's still kids that aren't seeing the hope or seeing the opportunities. Matawa principal, Brad Battiston. About four years ago, for about three years in a row, 
we were averaging over 100 suicide attempts a year for less than 100 students. There's only one year I've been here where we haven't had a student pass away. Last year, we had seven students connected to our program, either current or former, who were all under the age of 30 who passed away. There's a popular turn of phrase in the Ojibwe language, Mino Bimatsuin. It translates to the good life. This is something that everyone in Thunder Bay can agree on. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter how you got here, you just want a good life. And when the elders talk about Mino Bimatsuin, they describe it as a journey, not a destination. They say it's our responsibility to remain curious, to learn, not to give up, and to actively seek the good life. To seek Nanda Wabum, the good life, Mino Bimadsuin. This is Belma. She never gave up, not on herself, not on these kids, not on Thunder Bay. When I was in high school, I was part of the system. I was living in a foster home and um, went to high school, went to public school, and everyone let me fall through the cracks. I ended up dropping out. But now I <laughs> I um, am working in a high school. I'm working at Dennis Franklin Camardi. Um, and Dennis Franklin is an amazing place uh, for youth, for students to get an education, but also more than that, it's get just support for anything that they need. It's amazing when I get to start work with the smell of sage in the air and just, um, just smudge. Every time I go there, I like wish that I had that when I was younger. But it's also sad to see that the numbers are going down for like attendance and um, just the population, the student population is going down because of what happened with the with the students there. The parents think that it's super unsafe because it is like, how do we fix that? This this is like a program. This is a school that is a good thing. But, you know, parents are still scared to send them off to Thunder Bay because shit's gone down here. And how do we make that safe for them to come back? It's verdict day for Braden Bushby, who at one time was charged with second degree murder for the killing of Barbara Kentner. There's never been any question that he did it that he was the one who pulled his body halfway out of the window of a moving car, who lifted the heavy trailer hitch, who hurled it at a stranger walking down the sidewalk as the car sped past. He admits to all of that. And nobody disputes that he was the one who yelled, I got one, after the trailer hitch struck Barbara in her abdomen, rupturing her intestine, or that he then returned to his seat in the car laughing. According to the system, these are the facts. But the murder charge was dropped. 
This has been a manslaughter trial. The Crown said they dropped murder because they couldn't convene a jury during the pandemic, and they didn't want to delay things any longer. But in order to get a murder conviction, the Crown would have had to prove that when Bushby did this, he knew that it could have killed her. And to prove that, they'd have had to prove that he thought about what would happen to her at all. And that might not have been easy. Bushby's friends testified that he was not in the right mind that night. He'd been drinking for hours. And that his intentions, as he put them to his buddies, were not murderous. All he wanted to do was, quote, drive around and yell at hookers. This was no hate crime, argued Bushby's lawyer. It was just people being stupid. Convicting Braden Bushby of murder would have meant convincing a court that a young white man's thoughtlessness and drunkenness doesn't exonerate him from having committed a crime. It's easy to prove who it was that threw the trailer hitch, just as it's easy to prove who it was who took the land, broke the treaty, separated children from their parents. The hard part is getting anyone to take responsibility for the consequences. This country was built on dispossessing Indigenous peoples and refusing to be held accountable for the outcomes. So the murder charge against Braden Bushby was dropped. And the trial has gone where any question of Indigenous suffering in Canada invariably goes. Maybe it's our own fault. Bushby's lawyer has mounted a defense based on the following idea. That maybe Barbara Kentner was responsible for her own misfortune. That maybe she had it coming. Maybe she would have died anyhow because of the way she lived. And we know that isn't true. People loved Barbara. She was a mother, a sister, an auntie, a community member. She had friends, a life, dreams, all things that were taken from her too soon. And we'll never know what the future would or could have brought her. But for those of us still here. A man who hurled a trailer hitch at an indigenous woman in Thunder Bay has been found guilty of manslaughter. In 2017, Barbara Kettner was hit in the abdomen by the hitch, which was thrown from a moving vehicle by a then 18-year-old. Like, you're not happy, but you're happy. I'm relieved. I'm so relieved. I'm glad he's going to finally go to jail. I was worried that he was going to get off, like when you think about what happened in other cases, right? But I'm really... I'm really glad for the Kettners. Maybe, maybe parents won't, maybe parents will raise their kids not to be racist where they think it's okay to throw stuff at us on the streets. Tina Fontaine, Trayvon Martin, Barbara Kentner. That's what was going through my mind. 
But now the step two is what will the sentencing be? That is the second step. We still have a lot of work to be done. That's where I land. And we're not going to stop. Why does somebody have to die before everybody realizes what racism is all about? I'm relieved and I'm kind of excited because we got the right decision that came out. And Were you expecting that decision? Are you willing to that? Yes. 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 Because he didn't throw the trailer hitch at my sister out of a moving vehicle. She wouldn't be dead. I'm glad to... The judge made the right decision. Justice was like pretty much served, but I feel a whole lot better yeah. knowing that, like, you know, he's guilty of what he actually did, you know? I don't like that he's he gets remanded into society still. And others, you know, if you're if you're a native and you got charged like this, you get remanded into custody right away. And he gets to enjoy his family. Why can't you know, why can't Serena enjoy her mother? She can't never enjoy her mother anymore. But when she needs her mother the most right now. That's what... That's what gets to me, you know. Mike Cookham taught me how to fight. She was tough. She used to say things like, us Indians... We fight hard, we love hard. And she was right. People in Barbara's life loved her. And now, people that didn't even know her love her. This is the antidote to all of this. Love. This is Thunder Bay Two-Spirit Elder, Mani Chakabi. Maybe not everybody had a grandmother like mine. My grandmother really taught me a lot of things. That's what I wanted to say about love. And that's what I work with my young people here. I tell them no matter what happens, love is going to conquer. And that is the hardest work. But when you say, I hate you, or you hate somebody, that only takes a second. Next thing you got 10 followers or who's hating that person. It's so easy to hate, but love is the hardest work to work to work with. It's a it's a big job to do when you love somebody. Return to Thunder Bay is hosted by me, Ryan McMahon. Research and reporting by John Thompson, Ryan McMahon, and J. Patrick Thomas. Written by Ryan McMahon, John Thompson, David Crosby, and J. Patrick Thomas. Produced and edited by David Crosby. Music by Chris Dirksen. Mixing and sound design by Chandra Bullicon. Jesse Brown is the executive producer of Return to Thunder Bay. A special thanks to our colleagues at APTN for their reporting. If you like what we do, Please support us at canadaland.com slash join.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 